If I had to use just one word to sum up the book my guest and I read for this week, along with the conversation we had about it, that word would be cozy. Cozy is one of my favorite words in the English language and is certainly one of my favorite states of being. So as you can imagine, this is very exciting. On episode 161, we are taking on a serious classic, Maudhart Lovelace's Betsy Tacey, which was published in 1940 and inspired a series of books that generations of young readers, especially young girls, would keep close to their hearts. In Betsy Tacey, five-year-old neighbors Betsy and Tacey become the best of friends and have all kinds of adventures. They play dress-up, hike to the top of a big hill near their homes, commiserate about their annoying big sisters, and dream about what it would be like to live in the chocolate-colored house in town. They also tackle some bigger, more emotional moments the loss of a family member, the arrival of a new sibling, and first day of school jitters. By the end of the book, there's a new potential friend in the mix, and they'll have to figure out how to navigate that too. Betsy Tacey is a real tribute to friendship, and it gave me all kinds of warm fuzzies while I was reading it. My guest felt the same way. On this episode, we discuss the experience of reading a book with such young protagonists, reminisce about birthday parties and paper dolls, comment on the way Maud Hart Lovelace tackled loss and trauma, talk about immigrant representation throughout the series, and consider what we might still, as adults, have to learn from a five-year-old's coping mechanisms. I also share lots of fun facts about Maud Hart Lovelace and how the books came to be in the first place. Let's extend a big SSR welcome to today's guest. Laura Hankin is the author of A Special Place for Women and Happy and You Know It. Her musical comedy has been featured in The Washington Post, Funny or Die, and more. She splits her time between New York, where she has acted off-Broadway and on-screen, and Washington, D.C., where she once fell off a treadmill twice in one day. Find Laura on Instagram and Twitter at Laura Hankin or at www.laurahankin.com. I really loved A Special Place for Women when I read it at the beginning of the summer, and it was such a treat to discover that its author is as wonderful as I would have imagined. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me for this conversation. And thank you, as always, for joining us as we talk about books. I have been feeling extra sentimental and grateful lately, thinking about how cool it is that we have an ever-growing community of book lovers around here who are just as excited as I am to deep dive on everything from symbolism and writing styles to boy bands and embarrassing first crushes. You all are such a gift to my life and I appreciate all of your love and support. If you're not already, come on over and say hey on social media so that we can get to know each other even better. SSR is at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and you can find us on Facebook at the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast Community. We have three, that's right, I said three, book clubs going on in the month of September and it's not too late for you to join any of them. In our free SSRBC Community, that stands for SSR Book Club, We have a group of fantastic co-leaders facilitating conversations about Sarah Dessen's This Lullaby and Katherine Patterson's Jacob Have I Loved on Facebook, Slack, and Zoom. Being a member of the SSRBC basically gives you the opportunity to have the experience of a podcast guest for a whole month. Plus, it introduces you to awesome pals in the SSR community. You might even meet the Tacey to your Betsy. Learn more and join for free at www.ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. If you're looking for something a little more mature, you might consider joining SWR, aka Shit We Read, our Patreon-exclusive book club. SWR meets every other month to discuss a book that's actually written for grown-ups and voted on by members. 
In September, we are reading Jean Hanf Korolitz's The Plot, and so far, I'm really digging it. I lead SWR myself, and we'll be talking about the book throughout the month of September on the Patreon feed and also in a live meeting on Google Hangouts in a few weeks. I would love, love, love to have you. You can learn more about the book club, along with the many other perks that come with a Patreon membership at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Join the Patreon family for as little as a dollar per month. I really appreciate the support, and I couldn't do what I do with the podcast without SSR's patrons. You know who else really appreciates our support? Independent bookstores. And good news, you can show your support for them no matter where you live when you shop for audiobooks with Libro.fm. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, then use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Fall reading is upon us, and you deserve to treat yourself with a new audiobook. I can't wait to hear all about what you're listening to. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Laura. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I'll share a little behind the scenes with our listeners. Laura and I are basically wearing matching outfits as we record (laughs) this episode, so I have a really good feeling about it. Same. I think we're going to really be on the same wavelength the whole time. I think it's going to be, we're practically the new Betsy and Tasty. What? I know. Yeah. I said it. I said it. It's a big claim, (laughs) but I feel that confident about this conversation. (laughs) But which one of us is the bossy one and which one of us is the bashful one? I think we're going to have to wait to find out. We have have plenty of time and lots of conversations to have, but maybe by the time we're done with this conversation, we'll know and we can circle back. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. (laughs) So speaking of, I can't wait to hear about your history with this book. You mentioned before we started recording that you had like sort of a story to tell me about your actual copy of the book and I stopped you, which was rude, but also I just wanted to get like my authentic reaction while we were recording. Tell me everything about your background with Betsy and Tacey, either this first book or the series as a whole. Yeah. So I am currently staying at my dad's house because we're getting our kitchen renovated. And I was like, I think I still own Betsy Tacey. I hope I do because otherwise I got to order this book real fast (laughs) because this podcast is coming up. Um, So I came here and it turns out I have basically the entire book series here. So this copy that I'm holding right now that listeners can't see, but trust me, it's it's very pretty and the cover's only slightly destroyed (laughs) from years of abuse and loving. This is like what I must have read when I was six or seven or however old I was when I started reading these books. But the funny thing is that I don't I don't really remember reading this one or okay. like I couldn't, I couldn't remember a ton about this one. 
I remember loving the older ones, like when Betsy's in high school and she's falling in love and all of those. Like I have some pretty vivid memories of parts of that. When I started reading this, a bunch of stuff came back to me and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now I remember reading this, but yeah, I kind of blocked this one out in favor of 15 year old Betsy, you know, <laughs> waiting for her tall, dark, handsome stranger. Well, of course. Well, it's so funny because I remember reading Betsy Tacey, the series, but I couldn't remember as I was reading if I'd read this first installment. Mm. And Laura, as you held up your copy with that old cover, I realized that I totally have read this book because <laughs> I was reading it for the podcast and I, I showed it to you, Laura, but it's like kind of a weird trim size and a new cover that I think they're almost trying to make look even more old fashioned than the copy that I read probably in the mid 90s, which mm. is the one that you have. Mm -hmm. um, but I can now confirm, having seen your copy, that I did indeed read Betsy Tacey, book one, when I was a kid. I don't think I ever read the older books in the series or, or when Betsy and Tacey get older. And I have, I have all kinds of publishing history from my research that I'm happy to share with you as we go through. I think I maybe read a couple of the books from the original four you know, there were, there were sort of all of these different like chunks of the series. And so there were four to start. And I think I read a couple of those. And then I, I hate to say it, but I think I maybe got bored of it. And I wish that I had read on to the high school years because I've had a few people message me on Instagram and say like, oh my gosh, I loved when Betsy got older. It was like my first exposure to like stories of dating and like this more grown up lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it was so, it still felt very cozy, right? Because mm -hmm. it was like taking place in the, in this past in this sort of idyllic town. And they were always going on like sleigh rides together right. and, and celebrating various holidays and falling in love. And it was just very charming. It is charming. And I actually wrote the word cozy in like giant letters about halfway through. Cause I was like, if I had to sum up my reading experience of this book in one word, it would have to be cozy. Like I feel like I'm wrapped in a big fuzzy blanket, even in August as I read this book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so right. I agree with that 100%. <laughs> And the other cool thing about this, because we haven't read that many books for the podcast that are quite this old. So this book was published in 1940. And I do remember when I read it as a kid that it was like a book that my mom had talked about reading when she was growing up. And that was really interesting to me. And I want to say that even my my grandmother had talked about reading it and now having done some research about like the history of the series and realizing that like she very well could have read it when she was young, there's mm -hmm. something about that that feels like really cool to me, especially like my grandmother and I shared like this massive love of books. And she was the one who really encouraged my reading and my mom loves to read as well. And maybe this is like a totally like book nerd thing. But there's something that like almost feels sentimental to me about a book that's been around for this long that like it can unite these generations of women. It's so cool. Yeah, I don't think that's nerdy at all. I think it's so lovely that you could pass a book down like to your daughter and then she could pass it to her daughter um, and you could all get hopefully something out of it, maybe a little something different, but also be united by loving some of the same things in it. It's interesting too, because these, it, you said they were written and this was written in 1940. Yes, 1940, but it's set in 1897. Yeah. Okay. I was trying to figure out exactly what year it was set in because there's like no mention of war or anything like that, certainly. Yeah, not yet. But my understanding is that that comes up later. Like there are mm. other books that really get into the beginnings of World War One. But as far as I can tell from the history, because I'm very prepared with the history. So <laughs> Maud Hart Lovelace, the author, wrote 
the first book, Betsy Tasty, based on these stories that she used to tell her daughter while she was going to sleep at night of her own childhood growing up in Mankato. Mankato, I feel like is associated with the Little House books. Like I remember them going to Mankato to like get supplies Mm -hmm. because they had no access to supplies. And I'm not getting into a Little House conversation right now, obviously. But (laughs) if you are wondering when you've heard of Mankato before maybe that's why but yes Maud Hart Lovelace grew up in Mankato and she used to tell her daughter these stories of her seemingly idyllic childhood there and so she decided to put pen to paper in 1940 probably literally and write these books for children and she had only planned to write four of them and then her husband and her daughter found all of her old diaries from high school which I mean, feels a little invasive. And they were like, no, you have to keep going. Like you have to keep writing because the original four books were extremely autobiographical. Betsy is based on Maud and Tacey is based on Maud's best friend who went by Bick. Bick Kenny was her name. <laughs> okay. And I know, Bick Kenny. Like the pens? I, yeah, but with a K. Okay. Love a pen reference. Really appreciate <laughs> that. But I, I wish I could say that it was exactly like the pens. And so they were like, no, you have to keep going because based on these diaries that we've now uncovered, like you have a lot more story left in you. So then she kept writing and ultimately she got to these high school years. I think there are 13 books in the series in total, but there's a lot of interesting stuff out there just about like how the books became popular, how they follow her life growing up. I think it's really cool that the books sort of become more difficult to read over time so that like the younger books are really appropriate for younger readers. But my understanding is that the books from her high school years are like better suited for young adults so that you can actually like kind of grow up with them. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a six-year-old, you would not be reading Heaven to Betsy. (laughs) You'd probably be quite confused. And then ultimately, I think it does follow her all the way through like getting married. Her first year or two of marriage maybe mm-hmm. and she goes abroad which I think is cool like I, I read somewhere that it, it follows her like year in Munich or something yeah Betsy's a cool lady the interesting thing to me though is that you know this book Betsy Tacy is so much about this friendship between the mm-hmm. two girls right and then uh, in my recollection of the series Tacy kind of falls a little bit by the wayside <laughs> you know like this book is really a love letter to Tacy um, and then I think by the time Betsy is falling in love with her husband, it's like, oh, Tacey is still a friend, but she's not the secondary character of the book. Yeah, like, if I, Tacey, like, see you at the wedding. It, yeah, it, yeah, it seemed like that from the research that I did. And it made me sad because I, I assumed from reading this book again and just my understanding of the rest of these, like, early books that they would continue to have these adventures together well into high school and even young adulthood. And that is that is kind of a bummer. But I I think that like, I guess I took for granted the fandom that these books have. And it's amazing. Like the reason that these books came back into print because they were all out of print in the 80s was because so many people like demanded HarperCollins to put them back in print. And yeah, the Maud Hart Lovelace Society like came together in Mankato and put together a letter writing campaign to bring the books back which is fascinating. Then they um, like refurbished Maud Hart Lovelace's house as well as Bick Kenny's house across the street <laughs> and turned them into museums in Mankato. So you can like go to the Maud Hart Lovelace house, which is pretty cool. And they have conventions in Mankato. I mean, I assume they're not having them right now, but generally every year you can go to 
a Betsy Tacy Society convention. Like you can become a member of the society. They have levels for kids and adults and seniors. Like you can have all these different sponsorship opportunities. And I think it's just, it's fascinating. Anna Quinlan called Betsy a feminist icon. Um, Meg Cabot has made keynote speeches at the Betsy Tacy conventions. (laughs) Like this is a whole thing. Wow. Well, now I want to go to these conventions once that's possible to do again. I know. We should go together in matching outfits. Okay. Great. It's a plan. It's done. We'll go to the museum. We'll Instagram all of it. You all will know exactly what we're doing. Yeah. Maybe we'll even hang out with Meg Cabot, you know? In our dreams. (laughs) Yeah. In my dreams. You may have already hung out with her. I don't know, but certainly in my dreams. In in my dreams too. Yeah. (laughs) I probably have Princess Diaries on my shelves here as well. (laughs) Shout out to Meg Cabot if you just so happen to be listening. Who knows? Mm Mm-hmm. You never know. Okay, well, let's get into this first book, Betsy Tacy. As you mentioned, this really is a love letter to friendship, but we first meet Betsy herself, and she's four years old when we meet her. And I can't remember the last time, I mean, even in my journey rereading all of these kids' books for SSR, I don't think I've read about a four-year-old heroine before. Yeah, it's so young. I definitely had this, this moment when I first started reading of like, would a four-year-old be this smart and independent? Yeah. <laughs> but maybe. Also, it was like a different time. I feel like mm. parents back then were sort of like, yeah, four-year-old, go ahead. Go like wander the neighborhood by yourself. Yeah. No, that's so true. And I also think that like something that struck me as I was reading was that like the line between what's real and what's imagined in this book, it's so blurry. Yeah. And I feel like it is sort of hard to believe that a four-year-old could be quite this smart and so independent, but like this is how she perceives herself or how she imagines herself to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a mix. Like I do think it's a function of the time. And we've talked about that on the podcast before where like books written a long time ago, like the ages, it, you can't compare. Like a 12-year-old in the beginning of the 20th century is certainly not the same as a 12-year-old in 2021. And so they read yeah. very differently, but it felt even more surprising because this is like a literal toddler that we're reading about. Yeah. And then I guess the book, she probably, it's mostly when she's five, right? right. So, so then she's older and wiser and haggard. So mature. Yeah. The world yeah. has really beaten her down. <laughs> yeah. But four is like, and I was thinking too, I don't, and, and I, this is, I have no evidence to support this claim, but I don't know that there are that many like chapter books out there about kids this young, period, like from across history. That sounds like a really broad statement from across history. But (laughs) I do feel like kid readers generally want to read up, like they want to read about older kids. And so it's one more reason that, and not that I'm surprised that these books have such longevity, but like it is pretty amazing that a book about a four-year-old that I think a lot of parents probably read aloud to the younger kids, but you have to imagine that there's like a lot of six, seven, eight-year-olds reading about a four- and five-year-old, and that says something about how much people love them. Yeah, because that's exactly the reaction that I had when I first started, too. I was like, what age is this for? Because I feel like six, seven-year-olds don't want to read about younger kids because they're like, ugh, I'm so much more mature than that. (laughs) That's a baby book. But really, I only felt that way for maybe the first chapter. And then I got so sucked in and I was like, yeah, I'm happy to be reading this book too. (laughs) Yeah. I'm five years old again too. This is magical. Yeah. (laughs) So Betsy tries to befriend this new neighbor. And like, I do think that this experience of being a kid 
and having new neighbors move in on your street and having like finding out that they're the same age as you are. That's so relatable. Yeah. Oh, that's, I think that's the dream when you're a kid, right? Like I I never was lucky enough to have like new neighbors move in and be my age. Although when I was a baby, baby, this girl, Sophie lived right next door to me and she was like two months older than me. So we got to be friends for like the first three, four years of our lives (laughs) before she moved away. And we're still friendly, which is really nice. Um, But yeah, like anytime I read a book like this growing up, I was like, maybe someday my best friend will move in across the street from me too. And we can, you know, wave at each other from our windows or (laughs) send each other signals um, or just like go over there anytime we want to and hang out. Yeah. I mean, you sense the anticipation on Betsy's part that like, who knows what could happen? Like this could be my best friend forever. And and that is such it, – it feels so true to being a kid because that's like the biggest thing that can possibly happen to you, right? It's like not only are you getting a new neighbor, but it's a kid and the kid is your age and that could mean anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like there's this sense in the book too that, you know, Betsy has – this older sister and her older sister has plenty of friends in the neighborhood, but there's no one for Betsy. So <laughs> true. Tacey comes. And everything changes. Yeah, I didn't really ever have a close friend in my neighborhood. I was always kind of an introverted kid. And so I think mm. I was like, I sensed the excitement of a kid in the neighborhood who was my age, but I also probably was like too shy to really like commit to making the friendship. I also had divorced parents. And so I was doing a lot of like shuffling on the weekends. And so I think I probably was like, just not part of that regular group of kids that was riding bikes every Saturday. Yeah. But I did have a really good friend who lived next door to my grandparents. Mm. And she was like my best friend until she moved to Virginia when we were like, 12, but How it dare was she? so, I know, it's rude. I invited her to go to an amusement park with me for my 11th birthday, and then she moved away. I could have invited anybody, and then she oh. moved away, but anyway, oh. okay. um, it was really fun, like, <laughs> whatever, forget her. It was really fun because I would go over to my grandparents' house, and I had much younger siblings, and so, like, my grandparents were tied up with my much younger siblings, and I would get to go next door, and Megan would be there, and like I had toys that I kept at my grandparents' house, and she had her Barbies, and we would like it. And honestly, now that I think about it, it sort of is evocative of this Betsy TC friendship because like we would meet halfway between the backyards in this sort of like line of trees, and we would lay out all of our toys. Ugh. And it was, I mean, it wasn't frequent because it would only be when I would visit my grandparents, but it was frequent enough that we had these like little rituals. Now that I think about it, it's, it's sort of Betsy Tacy ish. Yeah. It sounds like what I had with my cousin, Megan, who was my age, like whenever we would go up and spend the summer in my grandparents' house. And yeah, yeah, it was just like imagination ran wild together. And I just love how this book was such a love letter to imagination too. And like the power of imagination as well as to friendship. This hadn't occurred to me until just now, but the amount of time they spend outside Like Mm. when I think back to my childhood and I like I was I was even sort of like an indoor cat kind of kid. Like (laughs) it's not like I was like an outdoorsy child. And I hate to sound like an old person by being like back in my day, we we were outside all the time. But I do think that like I have very clear memories of pretty much always being outside when I was with friends and they're outside a lot of the time in this book. And so it reminds me of that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of their big missions is to like 
climb this big hill by their house, right? <laughs> and the big girls do. The big girls climb the big hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they make it like part of the way up at one point, yeah. and then they just, they just like keep going further. <laughs> yeah, it's a we're all cheering for them. You can't help but root for them. But yeah. it's not like an easy friendship. They don't make friends with each other right away. Betsy is much more outgoing, and she like sort of just marches on over to Tacy's house and tries to introduce herself. And Tacy is shy, bashful. I think is the word that's used throughout the book, and you mm-hmm. mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation too. And Tacey, like, basically just runs away from her, which, like, <laughs> made me feel so sad for Betsy. But also, I'm like, I kind of get it. Because if I – again, these girls are four years old. If you're yeah. a shy four-year-old and this other girl is, like, running at you, you're new to a neighborhood, like, you might run away and run into your house. Yeah. And then their friendship is like very nearly stopped before it ever gets started because Betsy like wants to know Tacy's name and Tacy isn't telling her, isn't telling her. And then she shouts Tacy and Betsy thinks it's like, she has never heard this name before. So she thinks right. it's like some mean thing that this girl is just shouting at her, some gibberish. Right. Like Betsy thinks Tacy is like nagging her and Tacy is just trying to introduce herself. And it yeah. just is a bad case of misconnections, but They bond at Betsy's fifth birthday party. And according to my research, Maude Hart Lovelace and Bic also became friends at Maude's fifth birthday party. So lots of parallels here. And it is very sweet because it does feel like Betsy shows up to her birthday and is like regretting kind of the way she handled things with Tacey and she wants to make it right. And so in the way of five-year-olds, she decides that she's going to have Tacey be her partner for like all of the activities at her birthday party, which is so sweet. Yeah. And this activity that they do at this birthday party, I mean, talk about like cozy and old fashioned and just so lovely. It's like they literally just march around while somebody plays music, right? But they march in like pairs of two and they they're so proud to be marching (laughs) together and like leading the line. Tell that to the children of 2021. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, do we put this on TikTok or what happens next? (laughs) No, you just march in a line while you listen to music and you're thrilled about it. Right. You puff out your little chest. Your mom is playing the piano and that makes you feel cool. And that's the whole thing. That's the party. Yeah. And it's the best day of your life up until that point. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like birthday parties, like there's something about a simple birthday party that is just like really charming. And I had a lot of like you know, my mom was really good at theme birthday parties when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I've talked about some of them on the show. I once had a geography themed birthday party, which tells oh. you all that you need to know about me as a kid. I think maybe it was my fifth or sixth birthday. And my dad threw me a party at his house. And it was a very simple, like there was no theme. We were just outside in the yard and there was a tire swing and probably like lots of snacks. My grandma's neighbor was there. So that was good. And it was just like, it was sort of the 1996 equivalent of this birthday party in the book where like, we probably were doing some sort of activity that would correspond to like marching in pairs to classical music. It was just very simple. And again, cozy. Yeah. Sometimes that's what you want. Cause that is what allows you to like bond and get to know people very well. Yeah. It was really nice. And then of course, at the end of that chapter, after Betsy and Tacey have become friends, we get this line. But the nicest present she received was not the usual kind of present. It was the present of a friend. It was Tacy. I mean. My, to tug on those heartstrings. 
is so sweet. Yeah. And this was after like Betsy lists all these other great gifts that she gets. So, I mean, it, it, it all being relative, Tacey is still really high up on that list for her. Mm-hmm. So then the rest of the book is sort of episodic in nature. Like we've established their friendship. And for the most part, like the other chapters are kind of unrelated to each other. Each one sort of just details like a different moment in their friendship, a different ritual that they established together. Some of them are linked, but they're each like their own kind of story. It definitely has this vibe of like each one was maybe a different story that Maude Hart Lovelace told her daughter before going to bed. So mm-hmm. I have a couple of favorite moments, favorite chapters, favorite adventures, but are there any that come to mind to you first as like favorites that you wanted to touch on? Yeah. Well, I always, I remember always really loving this idea of them having the piano box mm-hmm. and like building a little hideaway out there. So I guess in the book, Betsy's sister got a piano to play and like the box that it came in, they kept it and it's now their playhouse in the backyard. And they sort of like transform it into anything they want it to be. And I just like the idea of having a space like that always felt, uh, uh, you know, I'm a city kid. I grew up in Washington, DC. And I guess I was always like, man, I wish I had a box in the backyard (laughs) where I could hang out with my best friend. Yeah. So I love that. Oh, oh my gosh. My favorite one is when they dress up in like their own, <laughs> their mom's like fancy dresses and they parade around town. They like bring calling cards and they just go and call on different people and they like pretend to be grown up ladies and all the adults in the town are so nice about it and just treat them like pretend that they're their mothers. And it is just like the absolute cutest thing. And at least in this book, there are also these little illustrations of them like parading around in their finery. (laughs) Yeah, their dresses are like dragging behind them. Mm -hmm. I mean, the patience of these women that they are quote calling on to like welcome them in and be like, hello, like Mrs. I don't remember what their last names were, but like, hello, Mrs. Betsy. Hello, Mrs. Tacey. Like fully entertaining them as though it's an adult to adult situation serving them tea, like asking them mature kinds of questions, asking Mm -hmm. after the family. It also reminds you of the fact that like in 1897, life was slower. You have to assume there aren't as many things to distract. So I guess if you're an adult and you don't have a lot of other things going on, if two five-year-olds show up dressed in adult dress up, you're like, oh, sure. Like this should be a fun activity for the night. Like I can definitely, I can take this time out of my schedule. Yeah, and I think it really highlights this lovely sense of community that seems to be going on in this town too, mm-hmm. you know, that everybody's like, let, yeah, let me take this time to just help give these girls a really delightful afternoon. Yeah, and just the idea of dress up. Like, were you a dress up kid? Did you like to play dress up? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh my God, it was my absolute favorite. Yes, did you? Oh, yeah. It was we kept all the old dance costumes and I put those on a lot. And I have this weird memory that like, I guess at some point somebody bought me like a dress up petticoat. And that Mm. was like, that was cool. And then it was cool because then when my dad remarried my stepmom, she like contributed some new things to dress up. So I had like I had all of like different dress up locations at my mom's house and at my dad's house. I loved to dress up, but it, I do think that's one of those phases that ended pretty fast. Like I, I feel like one day I was into dress up and the next I wasn't. Yeah. Then it turned into just like going to the mall and trying on clothes to buy. <laughs> that's true. And then I grew up 
to be an adult who like doesn't really like shopping. So who who knows how that happens. But yeah, dress up is fun when you're a kid. Yeah, I totally had a little bin in my closet of like random things to put on. And I do remember one time my great aunt sent me this really cool sparkly outfit that I could use for dress up and it had feathers on it too. But then I wore it outside and our neighbor's cat attacked me because it (laughs) got all the feathers or something. I guess I looked like a fun toy to just claw. Yeah, you were a walking cat toy. Yeah, yeah. That's devastating though. I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. Thank you. Uh, it was tough, but I, <laughs> I kept going and I continue to dress up even after that. Look at you now. You have overcome that challenge. Yeah. yeah. Another moment that I really liked early in the book, before things get heavy, like there is a point in the book where like we get into some heavy territory and I want to get there because mm-hmm. I think those moments are actually pretty poignant, is when they go to school for the first time, which is also kind of heavy, But for some reason, like it still felt like they were kids. There's a moment in the book where they very much stop feeling like they're five years old. And when they go to school, I assume it's like whatever our equivalent of kindergarten is. Mm -hmm. They walk by themselves, which is like kind of intense. I mean, to your point earlier, they're very grown up for five. And Tacey is so upset. Yeah. She's so nervous because she's bashful bashful she is so (laughs) bashful she does not speak a word like Betsy's so excited she can't wait they're walking to school she's like pointing out all these landmarks she's very interested in this chocolate colored mansion that they walk by every day on their way to school which comes back later Mm -hmm. um she's like this is gonna be great we're gonna go to school look at all this great stuff we're walking by Tacey's not saying a word and when they get to school she continues not to say a word And Betsy really shows up for her, like during recess or whatever kind of break they have in the middle of the day, she tries to talk to her. And then there's this moment that's like a total mess. And I I pulled out the quote just because I thought it was, I mean, it was just representative of a total mess of a situation. So Tacey's crying. Betsy goes to her. Tacey explains that she's going to leave. She wants to walk home. And then they get in trouble because the teacher's like, well, you can't leave. And then Betsy is upset because she doesn't want to get in trouble. I think the teacher uses the word runaway and that like really is triggering for Betsy. So then this is the line that we get from Maud Hart Lovelace. Once started, Betsy cried as hard as Tacey, harder perhaps. And when Tacey heard Betsy cry, she took a fresh start. They held each other tight and wailed. What a scene. Like honestly, you can just picture it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at this point they've like Tacey has taken off, right? And Betsy has like run after her and they're they're like sitting at the steps of like the general store or something, just crying and crying because Betsy's like, I'm going to get in so much trouble. And Tacey's like, I can't go back to school. But you're so right. It is, I think another child might have been like, wow, my friend is being a real drag today. Like I had school and I want to enjoy school. Yeah. And like, I don't know why Tacey's got to be so freaking bashful all the time. Let me live, Tacey. (laughs) Um, And instead, Betsy goes like running after her, feels her pain (laughs) and isn't, isn't mad at her at all. Just like wants to make the situation better. Yeah, and there was this really weird thing that happened with the teacher initially that is now coming back to me where like the teacher recognized that Tacey was bashful. And so she like kind of sequesters her at like a different desk closer to the teacher, which is now in 2021. Like I'm not a teacher, but I can pretty confidently say that that is like not a plan that's endorsed by educators. Mm -hmm. Like that seems really scary for kids and probably would do more harm than good. 
And that just makes Tacy feel worse. And then in the end, the teacher recognizes like, oh, I should put Betsy and Tacy together. And then they share a seat for the rest of the year. Yeah, it's so cute. But yeah, I thought that that was like a really smart thing on um, Maud's part, you know, showing that this teacher was very well intentioned, but not infallible and didn't necessarily know the right way to handle this particular little girl and thought she was doing a kind thing by being like, oh, Tacey, you can sit up right by me, right. Uh, the teacher. <laughs> but then, yeah, she she changed courses quickly when she realized that it wasn't yeah. going to work out. <laughs> It's nice to see adults in kids' books being fallible. And I also, this is occurring to me now, like, I love that Tacey is not perfect. Like, I love that we have a heroine in this book who is shy and, like, just figuring things out on her own. Mm-hmm. And there's not really any point in the story, although, like, Betsy doesn't quite know how to communicate with her at first. Like, there's never a moment where we feel like Tacey's shyness is bad. It's maybe misunderstood and it takes people a second to work it out. But I love that she is demonstrating that like being shy and maybe having some social anxiety, as we would put it as adults, like that's Mm -hmm. okay. And you can still make friends and like, you'll find friends that look out for you and help you feel more comfortable. And I like that a lot about this book. Yeah, it's not like, oh, Tacey is boring or dumb or like has nothing to say. It's just like, no, Tacey needs some time to open up. And then the richness of Tacey will unfurl to those lucky enough to be her friends. Right. Like you should be so lucky to have a Tacey in your life. Yeah. Speaking of, I think we should get into these like heavier moments because that's where we really see their friendship and like the maturity of their friendship. Again, they're five years old. And this is where I'm like, you know, I I don't know that we're meant to believe that some of this dialogue is exactly how a five-year-old would speak, but I think that there's something just about the intent of it that is meant to reflect just like the depth of their relationship at this young age. So the first big thing that happens is that one of Tacey's younger siblings, a baby girl named B, dies on Easter, I think, or like the day before Easter. There mm-hmm. was this whole fun thing about dying Easter eggs, and then Tacey kind of disappears because she's spending time with her family while her baby sister is sick. And then B passes away, which is really sad and like kind of came out of nowhere for me. I was like, wait, is this really happening in this very sweet, cozy book? Yeah, I know. It's brutal. And again, I wonder if this is a little bit of the function of the time in which it was written too. that like, you know, in the late 1800s, medical care was not as good, obviously. And if you had a family with a lot, a lot, a lot of children, which Tacey's family has, like, tragedy might strike and it would be horrible and very, very, very sad, but it maybe wouldn't like derail your entire family in the way that I feel like, you know, now if a child dies in a family, it's like that family is spending the rest of their lives like getting over that. There's this sense that like having a child at this point in history and probably before it is more of a calculated risk than maybe it is today because you really don't know Mm -hmm. what the health situation of that child is going to be and you don't have access to these great medical resources. So I agree. It was like they were really sad, but it didn't feel like it permeated the rest of the story. It was like very limited to this one or two chapters where we Mm -hmm. actually see it going on. But Tacey's like in her house and Betsy is, of course, used to having all of these outdoor adventures with her and they usually go on picnics and like walk up the big hill together and none of that's happening because Tacey is sad having lost her baby sister. And Betsy like knows enough that if she goes outside 
And she like goes out really early in the morning and it's very sweet because she like puts on all her warm winter things and she's like fully prepared for the elements. She just has this feeling that if she goes outside and goes to their usual places that like Tacey will appear and that Betsy can then like check on her and like see how she's doing. And Tacey does. Eventually Tacey does come out of the house and she too is dressed in like exactly the clothes that I think the text references the fact that like it's exactly the winter clothes that her mother would want her to wear. Like mm-hmm. these children are nothing if not thoughtful about the elements and like, <laughs> what their parents want them to do. And Betsy consoles her in a very mature and thoughtful and I felt empathetic way. It's a very like Christian perspective on death, which I'll acknowledge is like obviously not everybody's experience or belief system. Mm-hmm. But within the context of that like framework and that understanding of the world, I think what Betsy says to Tacey is really kind. Um, She talks to her about heaven. She says, heaven's awful nice. It's like that sunrise. In fact, that's it. We can't see it during the day, but early in the morning, they let us have a peek. Um, She tells Tacey that Bee's having a good time up there. And then this was my favorite. She says, of course Bee can see us. She's looking down right now. And I'll tell you what tickles Bee. She knows all about heaven and we don't. She's younger than we are, but she knows something we don't know. Isn't that funny? She's just a baby and she knows more than we do, even more than our fathers and mothers do. It's funny when you come to think of it. Yeah, that's the line that I was going to mention too. I feel like I'm almost going to cry right now. Safe space. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And I think, I don't know, the brilliant thing about this chapter and Betsy's reaction, like we know this whole time that Betsy is a really precocious kid who's so good at making up stories and like very creative. And I think here we're seeing her do that, like in in a way that she's done with Tacey a lot, like telling stories so that it's not so cold for them to walk to school, you know, but here she's doing it like the most sort of high stakes level of making up this, this beautiful story. And she's very smart about it, but it also doesn't feel like, oh, this is an adult doing this. It does feel like, oh yeah, when you're a kid, especially at age five, like you're so caught up in this idea of like, I want to know more than this person or, you know, like I want to get bigger so that I can know more. And so of course the fact that this is the tack that she chooses to take of of talking about B being so tickled that she knows more. Like that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It feels like she took what she learned at Sunday school and she like added her five-year-old sensibility and what Mm -hmm. she knows about like younger siblings and just did everything that she could to make her best friend feel better in that moment. Like she even engineers a way to like give B an Easter egg because they just died all these Easter eggs. And so like She's like, Tacey, which one do you want to give to B? And then she gets it and she puts it in a bird's nest because she's like, that's how B will be able to get it. It's so cute. Yeah. And not only does she put it in this bird's nest for like the robin to carry it up to heaven for B, she has to like climb to the tippy top of this tree that she's never climbed like to the top of before, but she d- doesn't say anything about being scared to Tacey. She just like does it so that she can get to this bird's nest so that she can help her friend feel a little bit more at peace and happy or hopeful. Yeah. And I think as adults, like we've all unfortunately been in situations probably where we found ourselves having to console somebody who's been through something this terrible or perhaps even more like we've all been in that position. And unfortunately, probably most of us have also been on the other end of that equation as well. And there's something about just the like, 
earnestness with which Betsy approaches the situation and like the lack of self-consciousness, like she's not worried about, am I going to say the wrong thing? Like, am I going to mess up? Am I going to somehow offend Tacey? Like she just says in the moment what she thinks will help. It's like, what would help me feel better? Like, what is it that I know about the world or about, again, like my faith? What have I learned in Sunday school that I can bring to the situation just to make my friend feel better? Not questioning it at all. And like, I, I think obviously, like you always have to be mindful of what might trigger somebody who's going through a trauma or a difficult experience. But mm-hmm. there was something about this scene that just made me like want to think about those moments differently that like sometimes just the thing that would make you feel better is the right thing to say. Yeah, I want to be as good at consoling my friends as Betsy is yeah. at consoling Daisy. Like, yeah, because I, I think it's so natural that we always feel like I'm, I'm, I don't know how to do this. Like, what is the exact right thing to say in this situation? And the fact is that there's never an exact right thing to say, and there are always a bunch of wrong things to say. But at least Betsy just like goes for it and tries and demonstrates that despite Tacey having lost somebody like Betsy is there and Tacey's not going to lose her. Oh, to be five. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it is wild that there's just like this chapter where a baby dies in this, in this very sweet book. Right. I was like, you guys are just playing with paper dolls. And I was laughing because you're creating this universe in which the five-year-olds like run everything and the eight-year-old big sisters <laughs> have to do all the chores. And then all of a sudden this tragedy occurs. <laughs> and the eight-year-olds like always have boring names right. in like the paper dolls because <laughs> uh, they, they're like mad at their bossy older sisters who are eight. Whereas they like make up the, the most flowery, pretty names for the five-year-old dolls, like Millicent. Right. It's so cute. And I loved paper dolls when I was a kid too. So, and that's one of those things that like, I feel like I forget about my childhood. And then anytime I'm reminded of paper dolls, I'm like, oh, that was great. I loved those. I had American Girl paper dolls that were my favorite. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like a paper doll book in the nineties was like a whole thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wonder if anybody plays with paper dolls anymore. Listeners, discuss. Let us know. Yes. <laughs> we need to find out. So yeah, there's a huge tonal shift. All of a sudden we have this tragedy. But then the shoe is on the other foot in a later chapter of the book when Tacey is the one consoling Betsy because Betsy has this like very real and relatable and hilarious experience meeting her baby sister that I really appreciated because I do think often in pop culture and even on like YouTube today, like how many family YouTubers are posting like these sentimental videos of their like toddler meeting their baby and it's this perfect moment. But in this book, when Betsy meets her baby sister, she's like, this isn't it. Like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I feel nothing. She's like, basically, I feel nothing for this thing. Yeah. Well, she's, yeah, yeah, she feels nothing for her. She thinks she's like ugly looking, which is true. Like little babies are very weird looking. Sorry, little babies. Yeah. It's not Um, And she's like, but I'm the baby of the family. (laughs) I loved this scene. I felt so much for Betsy. And I was also like laughing a lot because it's just such a funny reaction, but it's such a real one. Yeah. She like marches out to the barn and she cries, which like, I love that she had the, like the clarity to know, like, I need to remove myself from this situation because everybody's so happy and I'm going to ruin this for everyone if I hang around here and cry. I love that she was so frustrated with her older sister, Julia, because Julia is like into the baby and (laughs) thinks the baby's cute and 
basically like they came home from being away hanging out with their aunt and uncle they had no idea that there was going to be a baby there when they got back like nobody told them that her mom was expecting a baby which like again maybe a change in times like again to your point like you never know in the late 1800s Mm-hmm. what might happen with a pregnancy or with a baby. So maybe her parents just like didn't want to talk about it. But she literally showed up from this like great time at her relative's house and everything had changed. And, and her mom is like acting strange and obviously like totally enamored of this newborn baby. And and Betsy feels left out, which is also a weird place emotionally for Betsy to be in. Like we're used to her being very confident and very sure of herself. And this is the first time we've really seen her off her game. Yeah. Yeah, and I love I love that we get that. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I like I looked very briefly on Goodreads and one or two people in the reviews for this were saying like I just don't really like Betsy. Like Betsy's too bossy. She, you know, she's like annoying or whatever. And I was like, "No. I think Betsy's incredibly like sure she's a little bossy but she's incredibly considerate like you were just saying that she doesn't like the baby so she goes away right. instead of like throwing a fit she goes and cries quietly in the barn. Right. Those people probably also don't like Hillary Clinton so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they don't they don't like any female characters who are yeah. less than 100% pleasant all the time. Yeah, I mean, Betsy's the star of her own movie, like we all are. And this Mm -hmm. is how she's choosing to live that out. But Tacey, like, knows exactly what to say. Because Tacey has, like, 1,000 siblings. Mm -hmm. And she comes home and she says, you can't keep being the baby forever. Like, she's very matter-of-fact. Like, babies come into my house all the time. And I have been displaced as the baby. My younger siblings have been displaced as the baby. I'm sure there will be more babies in my family. Like, this is just kind of the natural order of things. And then I pulled out this line as well. The author writes, somehow that made Betsy feel better to know that Tacey used to be the baby and now wasn't the baby anymore. Tacey got along all right. And if this was something that happened to everybody, having a new baby come to the house now and then, why it just had to happen to her. Yeah. Like, this is just the next thing in my life as a five-year-old. Yeah. Sort of this incredible year that Betsy has in terms of like experiencing loss for the first time getting a new sibling and experiencing what that feels like, going to school for the first time. Wow, what a time to be following Betsy. (laughs) What a time to be five. But again, like, (laughs) Tacey doesn't have any self-consciousness about how she's dealing with this situation. She's like, this is just what it is. I I don't know if I'm going to upset you. She even agrees. She's like, yeah, babies are not cute at first. Like, your baby will get pretty, but the baby is not pretty now. And that's fine. Like, this is part of it. And I just like, again, oh, to be five and to just Mm -hmm. not have a filter and to say always the right thing. Like this is a big moment. And the fact that Tacey is able to sort of walk Betsy through it so that she feels better is really a big deal. Yeah. And I think it's so, this is like Tacey's shining moment because for much of the book, Betsy is the one taking the lead in their relationship and Betsy's the one helping Tacey. And here Tacey does an amazing job when it's her time. Yeah. She's like, I've got this. I've been here before and I can help you. (laughs) Yeah. So the last big thing that happens, their final adventure, is that there is a new friend that shows Mm -hmm. up, or at least a new potential friend. Spoiler alert, there's other books that feature Tib as the main character. (laughs) So Tib, who is also named Thelma, that's her full name, does Mm -hmm. become a friend. But at the end of this book, we're not totally sure. And going back to this conversation we had earlier about dressing up as adults and walking around town and dropping off calling cards – one of the calling cards that the girls left at this chocolate-colored house 
ultimately comes back to them because the family that lives in that house had been in Milwaukee, which they're fascinated with. They're obsessed with Milwaukee. Um, <laughs> For like no real reason. No reason. Just like, what a name. That sounds right. like an interesting place. Right. Ooh, like glamorous. Um, we're going we're going to go there in our pretend Surrey ride. But the family comes back from Milwaukee and they have this calling card that the girls left. And so the mother of this family calls upon Betsy's family and she wants to make a connection between her daughter, Tib, and Betsy. And, and of course, Tacey has to be involved because Tacey is already Betsy's best friend. But they're like a little unsure. Like they've kind of got this great thing going and they're very uncertain about the idea of bringing somebody else into their little group. But they they do. They sort of invite her to come along on some of their rituals. They show her some of their places. And it's pretty clear at the end of the book that, like, it's going to work out with them as friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, also doesn't hurt that this means they get to spend time in the chocolate-colored house that they're obsessed with. Which, right. Yeah. I, I also just loved this detail that throughout the book, there's this house in town that they're like this is so pretty right. and at one point they make two nickels by selling some right. colored sand <laughs> that they, that they right. put into jars um, and they're like two nickels that's nine cents we're rich now right we will buy this house <laughs> why don't we buy the chocolate colored house um anyways and so then Tib comes to town and lives in it and gives them a tour of it and it seems seems like Tib's going to be like the rich girl in this friendship right Right. yeah they're like we don't need a tour because we kind of already know where all the stained glass is because we love this house (laughs) but do you like the stained glass and she's like what are you talking about how do you know about my house (laughs) but I do I agree like I love that the house is not brown it's chocolate covered chocolate and I kept wanting to think chocolate covered but it's chocolate colored it's confusing but it's not brown it's a chocolate colored house (laughs) And they get to make friends with the girl who lives in it. And before we kind of transition into the last few moments of our time together, I did want to call out something about Tib that I stumbled upon while I was doing my research. I found this one paper that was written in a journal called Children's Literature that's called Diversity in Deep Valley, Encountering the Other in the Betsy Tacey series. Mm -hmm. And it talks about how Deep Valley, which is the fictional town in which these books are set, is, of course, written as sort of this idealized American small town. It's also worth noting, and I'll quote, that if Deep Valley is a quintessential American small town, it is not culturally homogenous or without enriching diversity. And one of the main examples that the author of this paper calls out, and I'll link all of these articles that I found in the show notes, of course, is Tib. And that Tib, I guess, has a lot of references throughout the entire series to her German background. And having not read the rest of the books more recently, I can't speak to this, but I guess she sort of sprinkles her speech with German phrases throughout. And so there's a lot of references to the German immigrants that are moving into the area. Then Betsy, of course, spends the time abroad and she lives in Munich for a while. So she has these connections to the German people and German immigrants from where she's from. And then this article also mentions Little Syria, which I guess comes up later in the series where there's this Mm. immigrant neighborhood very close to Deep Valley and the girls end up befriending a Syrian immigrant in the second book. They actually end up like, I think, defending her when people are saying disparaging things about her community. So there are these Ooh. moments, especially if you think about the timing, like this book was written in 1940. And like, as I'm reading it, I was like, okay, this is a very homogenous white story lacking mm-hmm. any diversity. And I get like, we're talking about white German immigrants. I'll recognize that like European yeah. white immigrants but to have a Syrian community and have that be a a plot point in the second book like I think that's notable in 1940. 
Yeah, I think so too. It's interesting too. I was thinking about obviously like diversity and representation and the role of women mm -hmm. in this book, you know, because obviously it feels a little dated in this way of like, oh, the fathers go to work and Betsy's right. dad sells shoes and the moms stay home and they yes. go calling and stuff like yeah. that. But at the same time, I think it presents these two really strong, interesting female characters. And Betsy in particular, as you mentioned, you know, feminist icon Betsy does feel like she's the kind of girl who could grow up and change the world and become like a best-selling author or something like that. I think the author is never like, Betsy needed to learn how to like be more quiet or to be a better little girl, nice little girl, you right. know? <laughs> she's really celebrated for being loud and and following her passions and, yeah, and being creative and yeah. I, I guess I didn't pick up on this in this book but I I read that later on she does become really interested in writing and her parents are really encouraging of that so sort of Joe March in that way yeah yeah I I mean obviously this these books aren't as big as Little Women but they feel in the canon with like Little Women Anne of Green Gables um you know Little House on the Prairie these types of things where these girls are centered and are ultimately like very independent and smart. For sure. I yeah. would agree with all of that. On the whole, Laura, do you feel as though Betsy Tacey holds up to your memories of it, having read it now in 2021? Yeah. I was a little worried when I first started it, but really quickly it like sucked me in and, su and pleasantly surprised me. I almost cried. I laughed. I thought it was a delight. I, yeah, just overall, I was like, wow, I loved getting to live in this world for an hour or two. Yeah, I what agree. I, I was I was cautious just because of the timing of all of it. I was very like, and listeners will probably be like, of course you were, but I was waiting for some more like problematic moments. And we didn't really get much of that. I mean, the only thing that I could find is that there are a lot of references to Betsy's chunky legs, but that's kind of it. Like it was lovely and simple and cozy. And from everything that I've read, like this series, especially for its time, made a lot of efforts to be progressive. And the fact that it has such a strong following and continues to, and that there are all these blogs that focus on it. Like, I think that says so much about the impact that it's had on the lives of women in particular. Yeah. Ugh. Yay, Betsy yes. Tacey. Betsy Tacey. It's so nice to go back and reread something and not be like, ooh, that's yeah. a bad line about, you know, this group of people or that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so glad we got to read it. And I'd love to know what else you have been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners. Yeah. Um, I recently loved Dial A for Aunties by Jessica Sutanto. Have you read that one? No, but I've heard great things about it. Yeah, it's a romp. It's very funny. Uh, it's about a young woman whose mother sets her up on a blind date and she accidentally kills that blind date. So then her her mother and her aunties like are helping her cover up this death, like the same weekend that they're all working this very fancy wedding. So it's sort of a little bit like Weekend at Bernie's. Mm. Um, but yeah, I thought it was super, super fun. That was Great. my most recent one that I loved. I have like a bunch of others that I, I can know. talk about. But. I'm sure. Well, I will make sure that I include a link to Dial A for Aunties in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to your new book, Laura, A Special Place for Women, which yeah. I read earlier this summer and really loved. I'd love to hear a little bit more about it from you, 
what would you share with our listeners about it and maybe anything special about the writing process that you'd be willing to share? Sure. Uh, so yes, especially for women is about an undercover reporter who decides she's going to infiltrate this top secret women only social club of the like girl bossy elite in New York, only to find out that these women are far more powerful than she ever dreamed they would be. And it was definitely inspired by, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, me going with a friend to this club called The Wing, which uh, was very big in New York for a time, has since sort of had a bit of a downfall. Yes. Um, because it really marketed itself as being this like safe space for women to come and find their community and also change the world. And then there were a bunch of exposés of like, oh, but actually they treat their employees terribly and they are not super inclusive when it comes to things like class and race. Anyways, but I was just very fascinated by like this whole world. So I decided to amp it up by making it secret and a little cultier. And yeah, I, I tend to think of it as like never been kissed mm. meets the secret history by Donna Tart with like a little sprinkle of practical magic in it. Mm -hmm. So it's just sort of like a bunch of my favorite things. And there's like a rom-com subplot in there too, all thrown together to make a kind of weird, but I love it book. <laughs> I love it too. Also Echoes of the Herd by Andrea Bartz, who yeah. was recently on the podcast. Listeners, when this episode drops, you will have probably heard her episode a week or two ago. So if you enjoyed The Herd, would also recommend A Special Place for Women. And the romantic subplot, so good. I mean, I am so into the love interest and yeah. their whole relationship was was great and a really nice like sort of counterpoint to the very stressful situation that the main character finds herself in throughout the story. Yeah. Yeah. You want to have like a nice thing that you can escape to and right. just be like, ooh, here's a fun trope of like there's only one bed. Ooh, the fake kiss. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny that you mentioned uh, Andrea Bartz and The Herd, though, because I found out that The Herd was coming out when I was like just finishing up the first draft of this book. And I was like, okay. oh, no, there's another <laughs> book based on The Wing and it's going to beat mine to the market <laughs> by like, you know, almost a year. So I felt like I was really kind of obsessed with Andrea and, and The Herd for a while. Um, and then I ultimately emailed her at one point to be like, by the way, I have a book coming out too that's that's quite similar but or at least the jumping off point is quite right. similar and then it rapidly diverges and she was like so gracious and yeah. wonderful and we ended up like doing an interview together for um Oprah Daily about what it's like to find out that somebody else is writing the novel that you wrote you know Oh, that's so cool. I have to find that that article and I'll link that in the show notes as well, listeners. That's such such a fun little um, synchronicity, I think is the word in the recent SSR episodes. But it has been so fun getting to chat with you, listeners. I personally am a big fan of A Special Place for Women, so I would highly recommend it if you have not picked it up yet. Now is a great time to do so. And Laura is obviously fantastic. Um, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and to dive back into this cozy little world. Oh my gosh. Thank you for giving me an excuse to reread this book. And it was so nice talking with you. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. 
Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>